Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Stephen Bainbridge, professor of law at the University of California, Los Angeles. We'll be discussing his new book, The Profit Motive, Defending Shareholder Value Maximization. I'll link to the book's website in the show notes. Steve, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you. Steve, you're a well-known law professor and scholar today, but I'd like to maybe take you back a few years to when you were actually a law student. When you were taking corporations as a student at the University of Virginia, what was the purpose of the corporation as you were taught it? And are students in law schools and business schools around the country today hearing perhaps a different purpose of the corporation than the one you were taught? When I was at Virginia in the early 1980s, the law school was basically the University of Chicago Law School East. Back then, Chicago was famous for the Chicago School of Law and Economics, and people like Richard Posner and Frank Easterbrook and Dan Fischel and others were teaching a rather libertarian take on economic analysis of the law that had been heavily influenced by Chicago economists, most notably Milton Friedman. And the Virginia Law School at that time was very much in line with the Chicago School movement. You had teachers like Mike Dooley, who was my mentor, Bob Scott, and others who were very committed to the Chicago School of Law and Economics mode of inquiry. And so the way I was taught it was that uh, Friedman was right when he said that the only social responsibility of a business is to increase profits. And that was very much the uniform take there, with very few exceptions. The main exception was a law professor named Gary Peller, who was a critical legal scholar, but he was hugely outnumbered. I don't know what it's like at Virginia these days. I've lost touch with the place, but my sense that there's been a fairly dramatic shift towards the more stakeholder-focused view that was espoused, for example, by my late colleague, Lynn Stout, who argued that stakeholder capitalism was the correct corporate purpose. And I think Particularly among younger scholars these days, there's more openness to ESG and stakeholder capitalism and corporate responsibility. And that was part of the reason why I wanted to write this book, was to address some of the arguments that these younger folks are making. This is an incredibly old debate. It goes back at least to the 1930s with Adolf Burrell and Merrick Dodd, but it remains fresh. And it seems like every generation of scholars wants to put their stamp on it. And so in some sense, I'm just responding to what the current legal academy is starting to take as their conventional wisdom. 
Could you walk me through a little bit your motivations for writing this book? You mentioned that you're offering a response to an increased interest in stakeholder capitalism and ESG. The purpose of the book in some ways is right there in the title, Defending Shareholder Value Maximization. Could you talk about what prompted you to spend your time on this book and who you're trying to reach and who your audiences are? I had written a number of things about corporate social responsibility over the years, but I thought it was a debate that had really been talked out and wasn't a lot left to say about it. And I had observed people like, as I say, my late colleague, Lynn Stout, who continued to make pro-stakeholder capitalism arguments. But I didn't find their arguments very persuasive, but at the same time, I didn't see any pressing need to respond to it. What really triggered my interest in writing what became this book was the 2019 decision by the Business Roundtable to adopt a statement of corporate purpose in which they embraced stakeholder capitalism. Uh, As a lot of your listeners probably know, the Business Roundtable is an association of roughly 200 CEOs of large American corporations. And about 180 of them signed a statement in 2019 that said that they embraced the idea that corporations should be managed to benefit all of the company's stakeholders, including but not limited to shareholders. And this was a rather dramatic change from the Business Roundtable's prior positions. The Business Roundtable has issued statements of what they regard as good corporate governance going back into the 1970s. And all along, those statements had embraced essentially the Friedman perspective that the job of a CEO is to generate value for the shareholders. And then you got this 2019 statement which radically changed their position. And you had a number of CEOs like Jamie Dimon at Chase, like Mark Benioff at Salesforce and others who were actively promoting this viewpoint and actively embracing ESG and stakeholder capitalism. You also had the rise of ESG-oriented investment, particularly with folks like Larry Fink at BlackRock offering an increasingly wide array of ESG-oriented investment opportunities and using their position as large institutional investors to pressure companies to embrace ESG as a fundamental metric of how they assess corporate performance. And so these developments, it seemed to me, gave new life to this debate. And I started looking at what was available in the marketplace on this debate. I spent the better part of a day searching one category after another on Amazon of law books, business books, both academic and popular. And the vast majority of those books, 99.9%, were totally bought in to stakeholder capitalism. And you had academic arguments that this was the right thing to do from an economic, from a philosophic, even from a theological perspective. And you had books targeted at corporate managers that were saying, this is the wave of the future. This is the management technique 
of the 21st century, and you've got to get on board. And really no persuasive defense of the traditional sort of Friedman position. And I thought that the market was ripe for a book that said, wait a minute, let's just take a deep breath and take a very close look at this because I don't find these arguments persuasive. And what I wanted to do was to try and set forth the arguments that are being made as fairly as I could, and then go on to explain why I thought they were fundamentally wrong-headed. And I actually think that the opening two paragraphs of the book are probably my favorite thing that I've ever written. And I've written a lot. I've written 20 books and over 100 law review articles. But these two paragraphs are the ones that I'm proudest of, and I'm just going to just read them. There are a lot of books on the market praising stakeholder capitalism. They proclaim a new age in which big corporations should embrace, and in fact are embracing, environmental, social, and governance goals. Whether putatively objective academic tomes filled with statistics or mass market books filled with bullet points, the bottom line is the same. Namely, that stakeholder capitalism is the right thing to do, both morally and financially. Stop. This is not one of those books. And I just, when I wrote that, I was just so happy with that. And it it took a little bit to get my editor to sign off on that, but he ultimately thought that was pretty good, too. And that captures the gist of what the book's trying to do. I'd like to delve into the key arguments of the book a bit. There are maybe two sides of this coin here. One is you're defending shareholder value maximization as the economically efficient or the normatively desirable or even the theologically preferable approach to how the corporation is to behave and how its managers are to view its purpose. And then the flip side of that is presumably you would view the stakeholder approach to not be economically efficient or normatively desirable or perhaps even theologically preferable. I wonder if we can take those in hand. First, maybe make the affirmative case or your views on the affirmative case for shareholder value maximization? And then perhaps where do you see a stakeholderist approach perhaps falling short of some of the ideals or strengths of shareholder value maximization? The first thing we ought to do is define what we're talking about, because there's a caricature of the shareholder value maximization approach out there that needs to be addressed. A lot of people think that what shareholder value maximization requires is that managers manage to maximize short-term shareholder profit, to maximize short-term share price without regard to the long-term. And that's simply not true. What shareholder value maximization properly understood requires managers to do is to sustainably generate value for their shareholders over the long term. And that goes back to Milton Friedman's 
1970 article, it goes back to what Adolf Burl was arguing in the 1930s. Nobody serious has ever taken the position that, look, what we want to do is to maximize stock price increases, even if that means screwing our employees, even if that means killing the planet, because we don't care about the long term. No serious person believes that. So what we're talking about is managers who fundamentally are committed to maximizing shareholder value over the long term and in a way that's sustainable. That will more often than not mean that what they do will be good for the planet, good for employees, good for other stakeholders, because they recognize that in the long run, happy, healthy employees are more productive. Um, Climate change is a fundamental challenge to how we are going to proceed as an economy and a society. And so managers fundamentally have discretion, and properly so, to take those sort of considerations into account, so long as they are taking them into account with an eye towards long-term shareholder value. Now, the problem comes when you have a decision to be made that is not a win-win scenario. Most business decisions are win-win decisions the proverb about a rising tide lifts all boats, is true more often than not. But having said that, it's not always true. And there are occasions where companies are faced with a zero-sum decision in which some of their stakeholders are going to be better off and some of their stakeholders are going to be worse off. And the gist of my argument is that when faced with that sort of decision, the law requires managers and directors to choose the option that is in the best interest of their shareholders. And that's the right thing for them to do as well. And there are a number of reasons why I think that's the case. The first of which is The perennial problem, and this is not something I discovered, this is a long-standing argument, but it seems to be one that people need to be periodically reminded of, which is that managers that are accountable to everybody are accountable to no one. Let's say you've got a decision the board of directors is faced with, and one option would be really good for the shareholders, and one option would be really good for employees. And the board of directors is sitting there thinking about what to do. And the board of directors realizes, hey, our self-interest is aligned with the employees here. So we're going to pick the pro-employee option. And when we get asked about it, we'll say business roundtable, stakeholder capitalism, issuances, ESG, blah, 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 blah. And alternatively... Maybe the board of directors thinks, okay, the decision that favors our shareholders favors us. Our interests are contrary to the interests of the employees here. So we're going to go with the shareholders, and we're going to say, capitalism, profit, Friedman, Burl. 
And so the problem is that once you allow directors, once you encourage directors to take into account interests beyond that of shareholder value maximization, it becomes very difficult to articulate a single maximand that the board can use in, as a decision-making tool. When I was looking for examples of this, I came across a list that one of these ESG advisory outfits put out of factors boards should consider when making corporate decisions. And the factors were broken up into four large categories, each of which had numerous subcategories. And in total, there were 72 different factors that they thought boards ought to weigh in making corporate decisions. And I don't know about you or your listeners, but I have trouble maximizing two factors simultaneously, let alone trying to figure out what the best thing to do is with 72 different considerations to keep in mind. So there's that point that having a single goal makes decision-making easier. Having a single goal makes holding decision-makers accountable. And lastly, I am basically in favor of capitalism. I learned a lot of what I think about on this issue from a philosopher and economist named Michael Novak, who worked for many years at the American Enterprise Institute, argued, I think very persuasively, that the case for shareholder value maximization is ultimately a normative one. He said that shareholder value maximization leads to more efficient resource allocation, it creates new social wealth, and it promotes economic and political liberties. That people that are committed to corporations having the freedom to pursue profit have a considerable stake in ensuring that you have a free society and are going to devote their efforts towards that end. Now, is that always true? No. Are there people that will use positions of wealth and power to feather their own nests? Yes. But I think on balance, his point is well taken, that having a society that allows corporations to pursue profits within the bounds of the law is a society that's going to respect freedom, it's going to respect free enterprise, freedom of contract, and generally be the kind of society that I at least would prefer to live in. ESG and stakeholder governance versus shareholder value maximization have really been at the forefront in academia in the last few years, in corporate boardrooms. It's on the tongue of the capital markets and every CEO out there, particularly of public companies. And we've also seen it really entered into the realm of politics as well. Uh, We've seen both uh, some ascendance for ESG, and in the last year or so, we've seen a pretty significant backlash against ESG, particularly in in some states and in the prior presidential administration, beyond just the academic and the boardroom discussions. The, The politics 
maybe aren't necessarily the core focus of your book, but I feel like this was a good opportunity to maybe ask for your thoughts about this issue as a political issue. How should we think of it as a political issue? Any thoughts there on how to make sense of the political clash? That's a great question. And you're right. It's a question that I only touch on sparingly in the book. I discuss it in considerably more detail in a law review article that was published in the Nebraska Law Review a couple of years ago on the populist theory of corporate purpose. And in it, I focused in particular on not the sort of familiar anti-corporate populism of the left, they occupy Wall Street and so forth, but rather the anti-corporate populism of the right. And there's a long history of right-of-center populist movements being deeply skeptical of the corporate form and the way corporations are used. And the article traces this back to the Jacksonian period, brings it forward through the post-Civil War Grange movements, brings it into the populist uh, movements at the turn of the 20th century, the Southern agrarians in the 1930s, and then the Tea Party of recent years, and demonstrates that there's been not only on the left, but on the right, some very deep populist skepticism of big corporations. And that long-standing debate has been reflected in the corporate social responsibility debates over the years. The Friedman-esque type arguments in favor of shareholder value maximization have tended to come from people rightish of center. And the corporate social responsibility folks have tended to be more left of center. Those, however, have really gotten caught up in what at least I regard as a deplorable level of polarization and vitriolic politics that really doesn't allow for reasoned discourse on a lot of these issues. Um, Milton Friedman could have sat down with, I don't know, pick somebody like Galbraith and had a, a very good, honest, pleasant debate about the merits of these issues. Certainly Burl and Dodd back in the 30s, who were the original debaters on this, respected each other and could talk to each other and listen to each other. Burl actually wrote a book in the 1950s where he said that he thought maybe Dodd's view had prevailed. And you just don't see that in our politics today. We see these sort of very angry, very highly polarized positions being carved out. And that's happening on things like ESG. There's, as you suggest, there's an increasingly strident, anti-woke, anti-ESG movement. You think about Florida under Governor DeSantis pushing back on BlackRock, for example, and trying to kick BlackRock out of managing Florida pension funds because Larry Fink is perceived as being some left ESG crusader. And so we're seeing considerable amount of clash in this area. And one of the purposes of this book, and the book clearly has a normative take, the position 
I don't hide the ball that I'm a pro shareholder value person. But one of the things the book tries to do is to take the arguments on both sides seriously and concede when people like Dodd or Fink or whoever have legitimate points. At the end of the day, concluding that I disagree with them. But it's an attempt to write a book that both sides of the debate would find useful. Steve, you noted that this book is unapologetically a normative book. You are defending the shareholder value maximization approach to corporate governance and to corporate purpose. You spend, though, about a third of the book, the first third of your book, on what the law is. It's a descriptive project in some regards, followed by the rest of your book, which is making your more normative pitch. What's the purpose of offering the descriptive discussion about what the law is, and who's your audience for that discussion? Oh, that's a great question. Thank you for asking that. If you go out and you look at the literature that's primarily directed at business leaders and non-lawyers, but even to a certain extent directed at lawyers and academics in the legal field, there's a persistent claim that the law does not require shareholder value maximization. This is a claim that academics like Lynn Stout and Einar Elhay and others have made. It's a claim that Martin Lipton of the Wachtell Lipton Law Firm is making in virtually everything he writes these days. And they're pitching that at decision makers as this is what the law is, and that's an inherent part of their argument. Their inherent part of their argument is, don't worry about the law. You're free to take into account any factors you want. And so I think that obviously on normative questions, people can disagree hopefully reasonably, but they can disagree. And I understand that a stakeholder theorist might very well disagree with some of the normative conclusions that I reach. But there is an answer in the law. The law, I think, is crystal clear in this regard that, yes, directors have enormous amounts of discretion, and that's a good thing. But at the end of the day, that discretion has to be put to the end of maximizing shareholder value. The law clearly sets shareholder value maximization up as the decision-making norm that boards must adhere to. And fundamentally, there's no point in debating the normative issues until we understand what we're arguing about. We can talk about what the law ought to be, but fundamentally, we must understand what the law is And I hate to accuse people of intentionally misstating the law, but one of the people I rely on most heavily in my analysis of the law is Leo Strine, who is the former chief justice of the Delaware Supreme Court and former chancellor of the Delaware Chancery Court. And of course, as most of your listeners will know, Delaware is far and away the most important state in corporate law. And Leo Strine cites all of these academic arguments saying that shareholder value maximization is not the law. And he says, these people are pretending, which is about as harsh a word as somebody could use in describing academic theorizing. 
that, well, we're just pretending what the law is. And so I thought it was really necessary that the book start off by being quite clear about what the law is, so that then we could move on to talk about what the law ought to be. And it seemed to me that I wanted to do a description of the law that would be accessible to non-lawyers, that would interest non-lawyers. And so I have chapter titles like why the Chicago Cubs don't have to play night baseball that that I thought might appeal to non-lawyers and pull them into to understanding the law and to thinking about, okay, the now that I understand what the law requires, why is it that the law does that? Or maybe why shouldn't the law do that? So that was the goal of that part of the book. In thinking about your pitch to your audience, and this is, I think, a book that's targeted at both an academic crowd and also balances that with being of appeal to non-lawyers and non-academics, and it's available in, in bookstores and Amazon and other websites where people can go. But in maybe thinking about those broad audiences as listeners are maybe thinking about going online and purchasing a copy Are there closing words or closing thoughts that you might want to leave them with from this interview to lead them into perhaps reading the book in the coming weeks and months? What I hope people would take away from our discussion is I am not making an argument that corporations ought to go out and use their employees. I'm not making an argument that corporations ought to go out and kill the planet. I'm not making an argument that corporations should behave the way Scrooge does in the Dickens tale before he has his epiphany. I'm not making that argument at all. What I'm making an argument is that sometimes corporations face tragic choices in which they have to make a decision that somebody is going to be better off about and somebody is going to be worse off about. And when we're faced with those decisions, how do we want directors to decide? And to try and argue that, practically speaking, in terms of just the feasibility of making decisions, the economic efficiency of decisions, the accountability of decisions, the social impact of decisions, that corporations ought to make decisions that maximize long-term shareholder value. And when we as a society decide that decision's antisocial, that we don't like that decision, the solution is not to give directors freedom to be unaccountable. The solution is to regulate. The solution is to have the law constrain how corporations behave. Even Milton Friedman in his 1970 article says that corporations are obliged to play within the rules of the game, that corporations are obliged to obey the law. And that's certainly the case. And I think that in the long run, as a society, we're better off saying, okay, we don't think corporations should use child labor, and we should adopt a law that says you can't use child labor. 
That'll constrain corporate profit making. But the doing so is going to, in the long run, be better than saying to directors, all right, you have the discretion to consider the impact of child labor on children. Right? I think in the long run, and that's obviously an extreme example, but I think in the long run, we're better off leaving those sort of social policy decisions to the political process rather than to ask business to solve them. Asking business to solve social ills is asking business to do something that it's not trained to do. It's asking business to do something it's not equipped to do. And it's asking business to do something that it doesn't really have good incentives to do. And so I figure let business do what it's good at. And when we don't like it, we can tell them, okay, no, we're going to have a new set of guidelines in which you have to function. That's the basic argument. Our guest today has been Stephen Bainbridge, professor of law at the University of California, Los Angeles. We've been discussing his new book, The Profit Motive, Defending Shareholder Value Maximization. I'll add a link to the book's website in the show notes. Steve, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.